0: hello and welcome to the jacobite podcast episode 5 the jacobite rising of 1689 scotland so welcome back everyone we have now reached the point where viscount dundee had raised the jacobite standard on dundee law and is rallying troops to join the jacobite forces against the new williamite regime now it occurs to me that five episodes in I may not have given a proper definition, or even called the supporters of the Stuart Restoration, Jacobites. So now I believe here is as fitting a detour as any to give you a definition. Jacobite is a term derived from the Latin Jacobus, or James, meaning they themselves were supporters of James the Seventh and Second. Fans of the TV show Outlander get this definition from the character Claire in episode 1, So my apologies for leaving it until the fifth episode, but from this point on, given this was the first coordinated effort and uprising, the opposition to the British crown of people who wished to restore the Catholic Stuarts to the throne will hence be referred to as Jacobites. So Dundee began to rally his forces after being declared a traitor to Scotland, King William and Queen Mary. After receiving a letter from France from King James appointing him commander-in-chief of the Jacobite forces in Scotland, Dundee wrote to Sir Lachlan McIntosh and Clooney Macpherson, the chief of the clan Macpherson, to recruit them. During this time he was riding around the highlands from Inverness and back to the lowlands, trying to gauge support and stay one step ahead of Major General Hugh Mackay, who was hard on his heels trying to catch him. Dundee had success of people declaring and supporting, but not in any fantastically sizable number of troops at this point beyond the original 50-60 to 60 cavalry that were riding around with him. Dundee had stumbled in the starting blocks and almost got into trouble from the beginning because he had had to publicly condemn a Jacobite ally in Macdonald of Keppoch who had disobeyed orders and was attempting to extort the city of Inverness. Macdonald was abraded by Dundee for acting in a manner that could bring disrepute to Jacobite forces, and he went home in a sulk. He didn't even bother to carry out his orders, which were to escort Dundee to the next point of his Highland tour. Dundee eventually massed a small band of 120 horsemen, arranging a rendezvous at Lochaber with the clan chiefs and their forces for May 18th. Dundee's forces first hit the small town of Dunkeld on May 10th 1689 in a guerrilla attack, taking funds from local tax collectors before doing the same kind of hit and run in the small hours of May 11th at Perth, the place known as the Gateway to the Highlands. Major General Mackay was a step behind Viscount Dundee, but for him, luckily, Scotland hadn't entirely converted to the Jacobite cause overnight. The city of Dundee had barricaded itself against the Jacobite army and their namesake commander. Mackay was not thrilled by the defence, as he'd felt the units within the city hadn't bothered to engage Dundee's Jacobites, and that Lord Rollo had actually fled his positions, taking the troops with him, except for Livingstone's cavalry. Now this guerrilla-style hit-and-run tactic on towns, cities and villages had meant Mackay had to divert some of his forces to surrounding towns in order to deter Dundee from carrying out more assaults. On the plus side for the government, this denied Dundee a permanent operating base or any way of accessing coastal cities so he could gain supplies from the main Jacobite base currently in Ireland, which we will cover later but it also meant Mackay had to spread his forces thin and deplete his manpower, which left everyone, both towns and the main body of Mackay's army, a little bit more susceptible to attack from a large enemy force. Not to be outdone by Dundee, Mackay had also turned to diplomacy, and was attempting to recruit fighting men from the clans who had not declared for William or were openly hostile to the Jacobite clans. The Grants declared for William, the laird of Clan Grant even raising a regiment for King William. Clan Mackintosh declared themselves neutral, however, and to be honest many others followed suit, probably waiting to see which side would benefit first, although some had no wish of conflict whatsoever. Colonel Ramsay, who had been sent to patrol the Atoll region by Mackay, wrote to his superior that he would meet him in Inverness after marching through the Atoll region. Unfortunately for the government, the Jacobites intercepted this message and were planning to ambush Ramsay en route. Before they could manage to set up that ambush, however, a thousand Atoll men confronted Ramsay's troops at Blair Castle, the seat of Clan Murray. Not feeling particularly confident in his position, or the fighting ability of some of his troops, Ramsay retreated to Perth, destroying his stores of gunpowder during the retreat to deny them to the Jacobites. Mackay was disappointed in the least, as he'd felt if he and Ramsay had met up, they could have, in his words, beat or chased the rebels without the least hazard. And now, he was left calling in troops to defend Inverness, and rally Dutch, English and Highland troops to meet Ramsay, in a bid to block Dundee from reaching any further lands, specifically Clan Gordon. Dundee, however, was more focused on his gathering of the clans in Loch Harbour on May 18th, Having lit the fiery cross and sent it around the clan lands, as was the time-honoured tradition, clans Cameron, Macdonald, McLean and Stuart of Appen had answered the call, bringing men with them to swell Dundee's ranks to around 3,000. With this newfound strength, Dundee's ally Macdonald of Keppock, now on his best behaviour again, approached Riven Castle and demanded that Colonel Forbes and the clan-grant men, holding it for King William, surrender. Forbes had refused, so Keppock launched an assault, ordering his men to attack and put ladders against as if they were to storm the castle and slaughter those inside. Forbes decided to play for time and see if he could gain extra support, and therefore told Keppock that if help were not forthcoming from the government within three days, he would surrender the castle. Surrounded, and in the words of General Mackay, without clothes, arms, or discipline, you can imagine how low the morale of Forbes' forces were after three days when with no provisions no extra help arrived to relieve the siege. Forbes duly surrendered the castle to Kebuk, who let Forbes and his men leave unharmed, before burning the fort to prevent its use by the government to garrison any further troops in what were now becoming Jacobite lands. Major General Mackay wasn't faring much better at this point, camped on the banks of the Spey, barely half a mile from Dundee's forces, but well within range of his scouts. One of them, Captain Andrew Bruce, a veteran of the Covenanter campaign who'd fought with Dundee, was riding on a reconnaissance patrol when he spotted Mackay's camp, dismounted from his horse and from his higher position atop a hill, decided to harangue Mackay, tell him to surrender, taunt him and inform him that Livingston's cavalry might harbour some Jacobite sympathisers. Mackay, enraged at this, ordered an attack on the Jacobite scouts, but they had escaped back to their camp. Captain Bruce immediately informed Dundee of what he'd seen, and Dundee began to mass his entire force to attempt to catch Mackay in camp with the help of Keppock, who had returned from Burning Riven and was ready to take on the government troops. Fortunately for the government, Mackay managed to escape, deciding to tactically retreat when faced with what were at the time Dundee's far greater numbers. Mackay was pursued all over the highlands for around four days, with Dundee constantly attempting to draw him into a fight, but Mackay getting away successfully. Dundee, satisfied that Mackay's troops were completely in flight at this time, called off the chase and moved to camp his men at Glassy, plundering the house of a laird loyal to the government. Mackay was relieved to discover he had a couple of regiments coming to support him, bringing his numbers up. Dundee was informed these troops would be arriving as well, and was informed by a messenger that Livingston's cavalry, the troops that did not engage Dundee outside Dundee's city walls and were harangued by Captain Bruce for their sympathies, were in fact willing to defect to King James and the Jacobites. Dundee wished to nurture this rebellion and sent messages for the officers to attack their own at dawn but in an extreme bout of misfortune for the Jacobites, the first officer encountered by the messenger was Colonel Forbes, the man who had lost Riven Barracks to Keppock. Colonel Forbes interrogated the messenger till he found out who the officers were, informed Major General Mackay, and had the potential traitors arrested. A few days later, the new cavalry and infantry arrived to bolster the government forces, and whilst they may not have been to the numbers of Dundee yet, he felt that the Jacobite foot soldiers would not fare well against cavalry, and so he planned a tactical withdrawal to Badenoch. To avoid the men losing morale and possibly deserting at finding out they were retreating, he decided to tell his troops that he was meeting other pro-Jacobite clans in the area. His withdrawal went well, with a couple of exceptions. Firstly, Dundee had to contend with Macdonald of Keppock doing a wonderful job of being Macdonald of Keppock and plundering in the lands of the clan Macintosh. Dundee was furious at this. Not only had he warned Kepuk previously about this, but he worried that by looting people's cattle and negatively impacting upon the population, not only would it reflect the Jacobite army badly, but King James as well. Publicly berated by Dundee, Keppock was mortified at his loss of prestige and honour within the army, apologising to Dundee and vowing to abide by instructions in future. Now, even though the wayward Keppock was brought back into line under Dundee's command, there were stragglers from the main body of the army who felt there were spoils to be taken here and there, and as they moved through, around two dozen troops from the Jacobite army were arrested by government forces and hanged for pillaging. Kepuk and the looters aside, Dundee's forces stuck together on their way to Cromdale, and it was now Mackay's turn to give chase. Mackay sent in his dragoons dragoons were a kind of mounted infantry unit on horseback who would ride in and either fire from their horses or dismount and fire from their horses a small carbine, a shorter version of a musket. They would then ride around the battlefield as to where was necessary to be deployed. Mackay sent these dragoons in after a group of highland infantry and a small skirmish ensued between Sir John McLean and the Clan McLean forces and Berkeley's dragoons under Lieutenant Colonel Francis Hawley At a hill called Nockbrecht and I'd like to quickly take this opportunity to apologize to anyone going forward for any mangled Scots or Gallic pronunciations. Please send in if I pronounce anything wrong and I will correct it. The skirmish at Nockbrecht and its result were debated by the parties that fought in it and have often been disputed from this evidence by historians. The Jacobites claimed once the dragoons dismounted the clan Maclean soldiers fell upon them ...cutting down anywhere between six to a dozen men, officers included, sometimes officers not. The Maclean's then came back to camp with plunder taken from the British dead and celebrations were had by all. On the government side, Major General Mackay claims his forces killed around a 100 Jacobites before everyone had left the field. Now, both sides had a reason to amp up their victories and play them up for propaganda or recruitment purposes... In any case, we know that a skirmish took place, but it'll be up to your conclusions and interpretation of the evidence to decide which one of those won, as unfortunately a lot of the sides are tinged with bias. It was after this, on the retreating march to Loch that Dundee's army began to encounter problems. Reaching Keppock, the home turf of the Macdonalds, the Jacobite army was running low on supplies and were unable to source enough within the areas, not only given to the scarcity of supplies in certain regions, but that many other places were increasingly coming under government control. In order to attempt to combat this, Dundee had decided that he would temporarily disband his army, asking them to stand by on 24 hours notice in their own clan lands. This would be a lot easier to do for him compared to the government army, as, unlike the government and modern conception of standing armies, The clan armies were not professional soldiers, rather normally tenants of a laird or a clan chief who pledged to offer service in return for being able to rent or live within a laird's estate. Therefore, if they're told to return to their lord, their obligation was deemed over at that point, and probably many of the men were keen to attend their small holdings and any harvests that were coming, since they probably weren't being paid at this point. By June 14th, 1689, Dundee was in Glenroy with his remaining cavalry forces and around a 1,000 troops. Unfortunately for the Jacobites, just the day before, June 13th, in the Scottish lowlands, disaster had befallen them when the Duke of Gordon surrendered Edinburgh Castle to Sir John Lanyer. Gordon had tried to resist and barricaded the castle after the Convention ordered him to leave it on account of his being Catholic and therefore no longer fit to command. The siege itself had been somewhat of a non-event, given the cannons on either side were not fired, especially as the government had concerns about collateral damage to outside neighbouring properties. In the end, it was not a fierce battle that forced Gordon out, but the cold reality of siege warfare and trying to sustain a garrison of troops and fortress with no incoming supplies and low ammunition. Gordon agreed to surrender Edinburgh Castle, Dundee and the Jacobites lost one of the most symbolic fortresses in the country, the other being Stirling Castle. Losing Edinburgh Castle was a big loss of prestige to the Jacobite cause, but it in no way diminished the threat the Jacobite army currently posed to the security of Scotland and the crown of William and Mary, and Mackay knew this. Mackay had tried to rally support from the clans for William, but he didn't seem to be as successful as Dundee had been in this part. His solution to control and curtail Dundee's troops operating in the north was to establish a permanent garrison he proposed in the area of Inverlochy, not far today from the later town of Fort William. The fact the town is called Fort William might give you a hint that somebody took Mackay up on this idea, but it wouldn't be completed in time for this rebellion. In the meantime, Mackay had to make do with the reinforcements the Privy Council had sent him after hearing of Ramsay's misfortune through the Atoll area. Mackay began to deploy troops to Strathbogie, Elgin and Inverness, the major population centres of the highlands, and he again ordered Ramsay to march to Inverness via the Atoll lands. Meanwhile, in the Atoll lands, rebellion was brewing. It was rumoured that James Murray, the Marquess of Atoll, may have retained Jacobite sympathies. The Marquis himself had departed from land and the seat of power and government in London to visit Bath, to take the waters, as was said, and rejuvenate in the spas of Bath at the time, which were seen to be beneficial to people's health. This spa trip away also provided the excellent excuse needed for a Jacobite to distance himself from his estate manager, Patrick Stewart of Balakin, who rallied Murray men and occupied the castle. John Murray, son of the Marquis, the Earl of Murray himself and heir to those estates, was pledged as a Williamite and wished to take his family castle back, and upon being refused entry by Patrick Stewart, began to besiege it with what men he could rally. Now, this theme of pitting family against family returns time and time again in the Risings, especially when it comes to the Murrays be it ideological reasons or in some cases a cynical ploy to play both sides so that one can seem loyal later on, families were often divided along different lines. Now I'm not saying this is what happened necessarily here because the young Earl of Murray seemed determined to dislodge people from his family home, but it had happened from time to time. Now finding out that Blair Castle had been lost to the government was the last news at this point Major General Mackay wanted and he received the news not very well. Having made his way back down to Edinburgh he was recouping from an illness that had left him unable to lead. Fortunately however he'd had an opportunity to resupply and regroup his troops to effect a more ordered pursuit of Jacobite forces. He was still pushing for construction of his fort at Inverlochy, but this had now been delayed by the notorious Scottish weather. Mackay was also struggling with his own supply lines, because despite having access to the vast resources the government had, his supply lines were stretching thinner and thinner, and supplies were taking longer to reach him, and what did reach him was not sufficient to maintain an army of that size. When news arrived from the Earl of Murray that Dundee's Jacobite forces had seized Blair Castle, it forced Mackay's hand. Mackay was going to have to move north to seize the Atoll lands for the government given they were extremely strategically important, as who controlled that area could effectively control passage between the highlands and the lowlands, and therefore it was strategically vital it remain in government hands. Meanwhile in the Jacobite camp, Dundee had heard of the Jacobite seizure of the castle and Mackay's willingness to move toward it, and so he too moved towards Blair with his men to use his forces to overwhelm the government and begin the Jacobite fight back. Both sides wanted the castle as a fortress to control, so the race was on. Mackay would have to march north to meet them, or Dundee would have to move south to engage. Whoever was marching would travel through a deep pass with a steep hill to one side and a river to the other. This was the pass of Killiecrankie, and it would form the first major battle and flashpoint of the Jacobite campaigns. The road through this pass was a glorified cattle road where only two or three men could pass side by side. It was through this road Mackay and government forces would have to go to get to Blair Castle, so Dundee and his Highlanders would eventually strike there. Dundee's soldiers comprised mostly of men raised by the clan chiefs. The clan system is something akin, in my opinion, to the old feudal lord system, or the system of the Jarls in Sweden. It was rather uncharitably compared to a mafia family by Arthur Herman in his book How Scots Invented the Modern World. Now, given some of the descriptions of arbitrary punishment and control of the lands he used, I can understand where he got the interpretation from, but I do believe it's massively unfair to characterise them in this completely negative way. Clan chieftains protected their tenants from cattle reavers who would steal farmers' livelihoods for ransom or profit. The clan system existed to arbitrate disputes that arose. Nobody would question the authority of their chief in settling a dispute. Clans themselves didn't operate standing armies like the government, and part of being there were pledged to serve. It was not done on conscription, but on honour. Some of the men who fought for the Jacobites were professional forces, but these were overwhelmingly the noblemen like Viscount Dundee, who'd served in either royal forces, or others had served as mercenaries overseas in the service of other nations at war. There were limited amounts of pistols and muskets amongst the officers, and Highlanders had access to traditional targes, ducks, and broadswords they carried with them through the ages. Clans such as the MacDonalds, MacLeods, and Camerons lined up alongside volunteers from the lowlands. Some were armed, like Rob Roy MacGregor, with broadswords. MacGregor was probably there fighting as much to get the death sentence against his clan lifted as to restore the Stuart dynasty that had passed that sentence but a lot of the poorer clansmen would have been armed whatever they could take in as a weapon, some if they were lucky with the traditional Lochaber axe. The other major problem with the clan force was that they were disorganised in comparison to a standard army unit. Dundee hadn't had time to adequately drill these men in procedure and tactics, so he had to rely on his clan chieftains and their age-old notions of leading from the front and notions of honour and the Jacobite cause because no matter what the men fought for personally, it was vital to Dundee they fight together. Mackay's forces, on the other hand, were professional forces, hired as a standing army and equipped with muskets and pistols, as well as swords. Like the Jacobites, however, there were supply problems. Not because they struggled with sourcing like Dundee, but because their supply lines were long, drawn out and slow to reach the highlands. The officers had seen a lot of action, General Mackay himself had served at Sedgemoor, defeating the Duke of Monmouth in 1685 just four years prior. Others had served under Charles II in Tangier and on the continent with other European powers. Mackay had access to cavalry and a small amount of leather guns, a smaller, supposedly more mobile cannon that was wrapped in leather. For all of his problems, Mackay had trained professional soldiers who varied on the levels of their fighting experience. They were equipped with flintlock muskets, some had the newer matchlocks, pikes or new bayonets that plugged into the musket barrel. There were also grenadiers, of which very recent archaeological evidence has shown they may have used grenades here at Killicranky, which had been the first time British army troops used them in battle. The army was drilled and trained in latest techniques and probably felt confident they had superior firepower and numbers, but terrain was still going to be an issue. And so it was that on July 27th, 1689, General Mackay's forces marched towards the pass of Killicranky to liberate Blair Castle from the Jacobites and crush the rebellious forces of Dundee once and for all. Dundee, on the other hand, slowly moved up the hillside and took a position with his men in a line facing downhill. It was a beautiful day with a clear line of sight. Mackay had 200 troops leave his base in Dunkeld, about 20 miles from Blair Castle, at four in the morning to investigate the pass, as well as sending word to his dragoons to rendezvous with him. These 200, led by Major Lauder, arrived at the pass at around six in the morning, and on their initial inspection, found it to be clear. Mackay followed, with the rest of his 3,000 odd men, up to the pass within a few hours, including a lunch break. It was here he linked up with the two to three hundred troops John Murray of Atoll had promised to rally, the others instead preferring to preserve their livelihoods and staying home to prevent their cattle from being stolen. Together, these men began to enter the pass. Some Jacobite writers have argued that there were Highland troops firing off sporadic shots to take out government forces, but nobody has necessarily verified that. All I can tell you for any certainty is no government officer was killed by a rogue Jacobite sniper, because given the social conventions of the time, anyone less than an officer probably wasn't worth writing about. Owing to the nature of war reporting, there's a possibility this could have happened, but again, nothing concrete has emerged. So, whilst Mackay and his men were preparing to move out and head to the pass, Dundee and his men were holding a council of war to consider their options. Dundee seemed very eager at one point to march straight into the pass and confront Mackay's troops head-on but his other advisers and chiefs at the council had argued it would be best to wait and get more men to arrive onto the field alexander macdonald of glengarry disagreed he told dundee in his words highlanders yearned for hardy and adventurous exploits whilst many on the council felt it was best to wait and let men rest up or fight smaller skirmishes macdonald of glengarry felt his men were spoiling for a fight, and to compensate for the lack of experience they shouldn't give Mackay the chance to traverse the pass and should take the higher ground, where they could stand to have an advantage against his larger force. Cameron of Lahille spoke next and agreed in general with MacDonald of Glengarry that there would be a fight soon, as men were still in good spirits, and that to dally and retreat would cause the Jacobites to suffer and Mackay's forces to simply grow larger better to strike now and try and win the day. Dundee was overjoyed with this, and the general morale of the Jacobites soared when they heard they were due to engage the enemy. Cameron of Lochiel then moved on to his next point, which would prove to be far more contentious. He counseled Dundee to be a conventional general, overseeing the troops from afar, rather than going as he was wanting to do, wading into the melee with his troops. Cameron argued Dundee was too important to the Jacobite cause to be throwing his life away in a battle Dundee was to be undeterred however famously stating he wanted to be able to prove to all the clansmen present on the field he could essentially fight as tough as the toughest of the highlanders this reasoning was understandable given the honour system of the clans and their desire to lead from the front so Dundee would infer the men wouldn't respect him if he hid at the back or see him as dishonourable Dundee would fight But this action would come back to haunt him. As his men deployed in a single file line on the ridge to avoid flanking manoeuvres, Mackay's men were arriving into the pass. Mackay's men spotted Jacobites' advance parties, and so Mackay ordered his ammunition trains to distribute munitions. Had the Jacobites attacked now, the government forces would have had no munitions and could have easily been overrun. Luckily for them. The Jacobite enemies were still deploying, marching from Blair and along the hillside. Mackay ordered 200 grenadiers and some cavalry to attempt to form a pincer movement to flank a potential frontal assault from Dundee's troops. Mackay wasn't stupid enough to tire his men running uphill. Let Dundee come to him, he thought. Dundee's troops didn't see their enemy to begin with, as many were sitting on the ground resting after a hard-forced march. When they eventually saw the amount of troops they relayed this to Dundee who was spreading his men out accordingly. With his new formation there was fear amongst government troops that Dundee was trying to flank government forces, cutting off their supply lines and shutting them into the pass, turning it into a kill zone. The atmosphere was tense, even history does not know for sure who fired the first shot. Cameron of Lochiel reports that Mackay's men fired as the Jacobites were lining up and Mackay claims the shots came from the Jacobite lines, spotting him as an obvious target, his words, that they opened fire and some of Mackay's men were wounded as a result of the skirmish. Rallying his men with a speech that boiled down to stand and fight or die at the hands of barbarous Highlanders, Mackay readied his men to receive the Jacobite assault. Using the advantage of artillery, Mackay ordered his three leather guns to barrage the Jacobite lines. Despite some sources saying this lasted for an hour, It was of minimal effect, and suffered little to no damage upon the Jacobites. Both sides stood still facing one another, goading each other to make the first move. After a small skirmish between Jacobite snipers targeting Mackay and a force of soldiers from the government that repelled them, the real battle began. Goading the Jacobites to attack, government forces began to fire volleys of musket fire uphill. There were some wounded by these volleys, and some begged Dundee to order the assault to commence, but Dundee stood firm. He believed the sun was in their faces, so it proved too difficult to see the enemy, who were also obscured now by additional clouds of musket smoke. Dundee urged his men to keep the faith, and Cameron of Lochiel led the men in a war cry, echoed by the whole Jacobite army. Dundee's only change to his formation was to move his cavalry to the centre to deter an attack from Mackay's cavalry. At six to seven in the evening, the sun began to set, and the Jacobites struck, launching the famous weapon of the clans, the Highland Charge. To try and give you a demonstration of just how powerful a weapon physically and psychologically the Highland Charge could be, let us carry out a thought experiment. You are a young trooper from England in this alien land. You look uphill, hearing a loud shrieking cry, and see thousands of wild-looking men, dressed only in shirts and doublets, fire their muskets then inexplicably drop them to the ground and start charging towards you down the hill, bare from the waist down, having left their plaids at the hilltop. They carry swords and other weapons, screaming in a foreign tongue and seemingly fearless. If at this point you tell me you feel no fear whatsoever in that scenario, I would say, you personally, you're either lying or foolish. The Highland Charge was deployed by Dundee and his men to devastating effect against government lines. The government was in three rows – which allowed for a greater line of fire against the Jacobites, but in hand-to-hand combat, the charge broke straight through the lines. Had the musket fire worked, the lines of Jacobites charging could have been thinned out to the point that the charge broke. If that charge had broken and the Jacobites were forced to retreat, Dundee had absolutely no troops in reserve. This was his only shot. Now, why did the charge succeed? Many historians have argued the use of plug bayonets in the muskets. This bayonet, like its name suggests, literally plugs the barrel of the musket, therefore preventing any further shots. It was argued Mackay's troops had put bayonets in and couldn't fire as many musket rounds as they would have liked before the Highlanders smashed into the lines. Some historians have argued that given archaeological evidence, shots were fired and that plug bayonets weren't as widely distributed at this time due to the continuing presence of pikemen within the ranks. Musket balls found on the ground at the battle site give archaeological evidence that shot was fired from all the government positions. And whilst it might not agree on the reasons, everyone agrees that save a few positions where they gave stiff resistance, the government line took a full force of a successful Highland charge with broadswords, dirks and targes flying at them. Some of Mackay's men, though professionally trained, were inexperienced and seemed unready for this assault. Government men started to turn and run in disarray. Highlanders chased government forces from the field, buoyed by success, some of them making it to the river and the government baggage train. This break to loot and gain vital supplies may have saved several government troops from brutal death that some of their compatriots suffered, whom Defoe wrote later as cut to pieces by Highland swords. One of the famous legends of the day involves a soldier named Donald McBain of the government forces, who upon taking flight from the battle and pursued by Jacobites, found himself at the edge of the River Garry, a steep drop in front of him. Facing certain death at the hands of the Jacobites, or drowning in a river and death in a fall in front of him, McBain took his chances and leapt 18 feet across the river leaving the chasing Jacobites nothing but one of his boots. Visitors to the battlefield can still see the spot where it is said McBain's famous soldier's leap took place, as well as a sculpture detailing the length outside the visitors' centre for the National Trust of Scotland. The government forces' flight from the field was noted by those on both sides, as was the reaction of General Mackay. Whereas the Jacobite Cameron of Lockheel said he wandered around looking lost and then broke and ran with his men for Drummond Castle, Mackay himself said he rose on to try to repel the Jacobites, but found few of his men had followed on horseback, leaving him to link up with a few remaining government survivors. Mackay and his men tried to fight off what Jacobites they could and retrieve an injured Captain Mackenzie before trying to take from the field as quickly as they could towards Drummond Castle. Mackay then wished to move on to Stirling, hoping to regroup at the fortress and retake what areas he could. The army was very aware and very cautious of this plan and wished to go back through the pass, but argued that there may have been reinforcements there from the Jacobites, they decided to go with Mackay's plan. They were very, very aware they could be attacked on the way to Drummond. But seemingly, any enemies had vanished into the woods, and with good reason it appeared. The Jacobites had their own problems. Upon searching the field, they found, to their shock, laid out, fatally wounded, was John Graham of Claverhouse, Viscount Dundee. During his charge and cavalry leading from the front, Dundee had taken a musket ball to the abdomen and was bleeding out on the hill his army had won. He was taken from the field wrapped in plaids and succumbed to his wounds, supposedly saying to someone who asked of his health that it was better he gave his life so that James could retake his throne. Dundee was buried nearby at St Bride's Church in the vaults, which are now part of the Blair Atoll Estates, and the armour he was said to be wearing on that fateful day is displayed at Blair Castle, where the bullet holes can still clearly be seen. At this point in our story then, we bid a fond farewell, or not so fond, depending on whether you're a Jacobite or not, to Viscount Dundee. He was brave in battle, but brave to the point of foolhardishness, when it came to leading his men in. With him gone, the Jacobites had won the battle and the first major engagement of this campaign, but they'd lost their charismatic leader. Over the years, and more than any other commander in the Jacobite forces save perhaps later Bonnie Prince Charlie, Dundee was immortalised in legend and poem and song as a great Jacobite commander who bravely laid his life on the field for the Jacobite cause, immortalised even in the poem of Bonnie Dundee by Sir Walter Scott. The problem was at this point the Jacobite army had won a big victory, but now it felt hollow because they'd lost their leader. Both armies are estimated to have lost around half their forces, but it was the Jacobites who were seen to have carried the day. Mackay had left alive to defend himself against a charge of incompetence at best and cowardice at worst, but unlike Dundee, he was alive. He was getting ready to regroup his troops and take the Jacobites on again. From Stirling Castle, he would plot his counter-attack. Next time, we shall follow the remnants of the Jacobite leadership as they attempt to rally their forces. And the final part of our coverage of the Jacobite Rebellion in Scotland, and I hope you will all join me then.